0: I've known Tom for well over 30 years. We met after a class at Fuller Seminary, and um, then Tom has been on staff at Bethlehem Baptist Church, John Piper's church. He led their college group. He was the missions pastor. He was leadership development pastor. He's a professor at Bethlehem Seminary, professor of New Testament, but I love Tom. Every time I'm with Tom, makes me want to study the Bible more. Makes me want to be more humble as I see his humility. It makes me love people more, and it just makes me love Christ more, most of all. Mm-hmm. So let's welcome Tom as he brings God's word to us. Uh, <laughs> thank, you. Well, thank you, Steve. It is such a joy to be here and to see you face to face. I talk with Steve every month. Um, we Skype together, and uh, he just loves you. And he loves being here. He loves being a pastor of this church and to serve with the leaders here and, and to see God do a good work. And uh, it's a joy for me because Steve and Jan were an answer to prayer. Um, years ago, um, my wife, Julie, and I went out to Fuller Seminary. We wanted to study with um, Dr. Fuller, who was Steve's father, and, uh, and so we packed up our Bags in cold Minnesota, and drove out to nice, warm California. And we got out there, and and uh, it was great. I mean, I just loved studying. And uh, we had we had friends there that we knew from other places that had gathered. There was Harold and Joe and Dale and Brad and and uh, and. And then one day, Julie said, I want a friend. And I said, what do you mean? We've got Harold and Joe and Dale and Brad. What do you need? And uh, she says, I need a girlfriend. And so I said, let's pray. And we prayed, and uh, God led us to Jan Fuller, and who is Julie's friend to this day, and me to Steve. And uh, we have been colleagues in the ministry for all these years, even though our lives have, have uh, rarely intersected. But while I was at Fuller Seminary, um, I really view Steve and Jan ha- as having discipled Julie and me um, in working in the church. And uh, not only learning theology in the seminary, but to work in the church. And, uh, and because I gained that experience when my college professor, John Piper, became a pastor um, and wanted a, someone to come and lead the college ministry, he knew that I was working in college ministry. And young adult ministry with Stephen and Jan, and he called me and invited me, so I owe you my job also <laughs> i've been there thirty seven years and uh, and so um, I owe these guys a lot and uh, so it's just a privilege to be here and to share the word with you this morning and uh, and then again tomorrow morning and so to this morning i'm going to share some thoughts from first Corinthians four one to five and I'll read that text in a, in a moment, but I just want to say some things to introduce it first. We all labor, don't we, um, at times, just wondering what other people think of us, some more than others, but I think it is something that we all struggle with. How, How do people think of us? Sometimes we feel depressed or misunderstood because someone has a negative opinion about us. At times, we worry that if they knew this or that about us, that they would um, think poorly of us. Politicians worry about the polls, and movie stars and rock stars worry about being—they're just nervous about their waning fan appeal. Athletes agonize over what their coaches are thinking of them. Students are afraid that their teachers don't like them. Employees are sometimes paralyzed with fear that their bosses aren't satisfied with their work. Young children can be crushed by the disapproval of their mom or dad. Teenagers are bummed out by the scorn or mockery of their peers or being disliked or unliked on Facebook. And I'm sure even way back, Eve had a few words with Adam after he told God that it was her fault. It's true that sticks and stones may break our bones. And it's not true that words or thoughts or attitudes will never hurt us. Every one of us in this room has been hurt by things that people have said. Much of counseling is focused on helping people cope with and overcome hurtful things that others have said with their words or their attitudes or their actions. When we are consumed with the real or perceived disapproval of other people who are important to us, things can get really messy in our souls. This is so much at the core of our soul disease that about 20 years ago, a man by the name of Ed Welch, which some of you perhaps have heard, he's a biblical counselor, and he wrote a book called When People Are Big and God is Small. It's an insightful book that addresses the issues of peer pressure, codependency, and just the fear of other people. It is still definitely worth reading. I recommend that book. His title, When People Are Big and God is Small, addresses the problem. And the title that I've chosen for this message this morning is, When God is Big and People Are Small. That addresses the solution. My prayer is that we will walk out of here this morning with a deeper appreciation of the bigness of God and a more accurate realization of the relative smallness of people. And when I say that people are small, I don't intend to communicate any disrespect or devaluing of human beings. In a very real sense, people are big. We are the climax of God's creation, when you think of it. We alone have been created in the image of God. Even in our fallenness, theologians have correctly described people as glorious ruins. I love that term, glorious ruins. I think that's a great description of humanity. Francis Schaeffer used that term a lot. We are glorious ruins. It acknowledges both the glory of being in the image of God and the ruin that has come from the fall of humanity into sin. The image of God often pokes through our depravity. The human mind and body are are so profound, the human potential is spectacular. The common grace spread throughout humanity, expressed in acts of kindness, is a great gift. A hospitality expressed, I remember, in a hut in a village in Guinea, West Africa. It's humbling to me as I think about this story. I'll never forget the meal served to me a number of years ago when I was in Guinea. And halfway through our meal of rice and meat, you're sitting in a grass hut and uh, eating rice and meat in the sauce in a big pot and uh, while I was dipping my hand into the meat sauce, um, I asked the translator, I said, what, what is this? What, what are we eating? As my hand groped to the bottom of the pot and I felt this skeleton of a neck or something, I don't know what it was. And uh, just as I was touching that neck bone, the translator said, we are eating cat and uh, the man that hunt, the man hunted all night long because he knew we were coming, and he spotted a cat, and he shot it, and he cooked it. And uh, there's something glorious about that. <laughs> I won't tell you about eating dog with another friend in China, but uh, my point is that when I say people are small, I'm speaking relatively. Small in comparison to What? In comparison to created things, we are not small at all. We are the climax of all that God has made. Every other created thing exists for us. If you read Genesis 1 carefully, we are the only created thing in the universe that reflects the image of God. And that's a spectacular thing. So in that sense, we're not small but in relation to god the maker we are not big at all in comparison to god people are small and god is big listen to isaiah as he describes not only people but he describes whole nations he says in isaiah 40 he says behold the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust in the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Then a few verses later, Isaiah goes on and he says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So in relation to God, we are like dust and grasshoppers. Not that God doesn't value us infinitely more than dust and grasshoppers, but in relation to His perfection and His worth, we are minuscule. It's this contrast that baffles the psalmist in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 9, where he says, When I consider your works... Your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So people are big when compared to the rest of creation. And so human beings should be esteemed and honored for their own sake out of respect for their maker. To labor for the sanctity of life from conception to to the grave is a right thing to do. But when compared to God, people are no bigger than particles of dust or little bitty grasshoppers. The reason I'm belaboring this point is that I want to help us to learn how to cope better with how other people think of us. On a purely human level, it does matter what people think of us. Scripture itself speaks of the value of a good reputation. We do and should care what people think about us, at least in certain ways. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to be a stumbling block to people. We don't want to put up barriers to relationship with them. In one sense, the Apostle Paul cared very much what the Corinthians thought about him. They were beginning to doubt his legitimacy as an apostle. So Paul devotes significant portions of First and Second Corinthians to defend his apostleship and to correct their misperception of him. But what I want you to see this morning is that Paul's defense of his reputation is not driven by a deep insecurity inside but by a genuine concern for the Corinthians' welfare. Paul, as an apostle, had been entrusted with the mysteries of God. We'll see that in a moment. Paul, as an apostle, had had been called to a certain position. In other words, he and his fellow apostles were uniquely chosen by Jesus to receive special revelation. That's what we'll talk about tomorrow. And to communicate that revelation authoritatively and inerrantly. So Paul knew that it was very important that others had a correct opinion about him. According to Galatians 1, their salvation depended on embracing Paul's gospel. And so for Paul to be loving, he had to be concerned that the flock has a proper respect and regard for his authority. And so... We should be cared. We should care. Parents should care the same for their children. Let children understand them rightly. Husbands should care for their, their wives that way. All of Christ's ambassadors, every Christian should care the same for the people who are trying to reach with the gospel. But this concern for the opinion that others have about us should not spring from a deep insecurity and dependent, and dependent, that depends on their approval for our happiness. Rather, it should spring from a sincere concern for the welfare of their souls. So let me read now our text. This is an amazing text to me. First Corinthians chapter 4, 1 to 5. I'm going to read in the New American Standard, and uh, so that's pretty close. Um, but let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required that stewards, that one be found trustworthy. So it does matter. But to me, it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Yet I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. What caught my attention about this passage is Paul's freedom of soul when it came to coping with people's misperception of him and his motives and his actions. He says, to me, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. Isn't that interesting? Because it doesn't always feel like a small thing to us, does it? It's a small thing. It feels like a massive thing. If someone you love or someone you respect or someone important has a low opinion of you, it's a massive thing too often. For Paul... He says, It's a small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. It's interesting that literally the last phrase should be read, not by any human court, literally it's by any human day, which doesn't make sense, does it? It's a small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human day. But I think what he's saying is it's literally, I think. I think the reason it's often translated human court is that a human day is analogous to a day in court and is contrasted with a God day rather than a human day. And what is the God day? The God day is judgment day. That's, that's the God day, is judgment day. Or the day of the Lord when we all stand before our judge and maker and give an account for our lives. That's the big day that every human being should be deeply concerned about. Not so much about the human day, but the big day. However, most human beings are desperately trying not to think about Judgment Day. And we do it, we avoid it by anesthetizing ourselves with drugs or alcohol or food or career or relationships or TV or sex or sports or hobbies or smartphones or whatever shape our idols can take. A human day in court is like a speck of dust in the scale when compared to the weight of the day of judgment that each of us will face. Judgment day is even more certain than death and taxes. It's coming. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment. And the most important question we can ask is, "Am am I ready for this day? Are you ready? Contrary to popular opinion, you can't get ready for this day by trying to outweigh your bad works with your good works. That's the way we all just are born, thinking that way. I grew up thinking that way, grew up in a religious home, and was never really taught much, but what was deep in my soul was that if I was just good enough, I'll, I'll make it. And I had a vision that God was somewhat merciful, so if I was just 51% good, He, he would have to let me in. That was the way I thought. But... That's not going to cut mustard on judgment day. Our only hope is to be found in a savior, a substitute. So the key question is, is are you trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you clothed with a righteousness that is not your own? It's not your own doing. It's a gift. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Have you accepted the free, unearnable gift of salvation purchased by His cross and guaranteed by His resurrection? Are you by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body, which is the evidence that we've been born again? In other words, are you coming to God on His terms? Are you able to say by the Spirit, Jesus, Jesus is Lord? If you're not trusting in Jesus, Scripture says that the wrath of God is abiding on you. In John chapter 3.36, if you ever thought about that? If you're, if you're clinging to your own righteousness and clinging to your own good works, it says in Scripture that the, that the wrath of God is abiding on you. It's like a, a cloud that's ready to, to break forth into a storm. Scripture says that if we're not hiding ourselves in Jesus, that we are storing up wrath for ourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. If you're not clinging to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life, I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid for you. But your status before God can be changed in a moment. It's not something you have to go home and get your life in order and you know, try to patch up all the wrongs you've ever done. It's rather uh, resting now in the completed work of Christ on your behalf. And that's something that can happen in a moment, that your whole status can be changed. And judgment that's resting on you is transferred onto Jesus, and His righteousness is transferred into you and God can look on you and forgive you. There is absolutely no legitimate reason for you to leave this place this morning without putting your trust in Him. So hide yourself in Him. If you haven't already, if you haven't already, hide yourself in Him right now, and then the awesome, liberating good news of this text can apply to you as well. Paul says it's a small thing, that it may be examined by you or by any human court. Consider with me for a moment just what it is that he's calling small. If you look with me at the immediate context of our passage, um, verses 9 and following, you can read that on your own, and you can see how deeply Paul was misunderstood by some. Because he chose the Calvary Road to follow Jesus in his humiliation, and he chose to not receive money for his ministry, he appeared to some to be a spectacle. People thought of him as a fool, as weak, as without honor, as hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed and roughly treated, homeless, reviled, persecuted, slandered. He was considered the scum of the earth. And the list could go on. These certainly can't be marks of a true apostle. All of this caused the status-seeking Corinthians who were measuring the status of Cephas and Apollos and Paul on very worldly terms, they caused them to doubt Paul's authenticity. So what's Paul's response? He was concerned about their misunderstanding, but it was for the sake of their souls. He wasn't concerned about this for the sake of his own soul. His own soul he had entrusted to another. He was secure in another. He found his security not in the Corinthians' opinion of him. He found his security in God's opinion or declaration of him. God accepted Paul as Paul attached himself to Jesus. The verdict of Judgment Day was already issued. Paul was accepted by the maker and judge of the universe. God's smile was on Paul in Christ. The wrath of God was no longer being stored up against Paul. The wrath of God was spent on Jesus on behalf of Paul. It was satisfied through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. God's righteousness no longer demanded Paul's damnation. God's righteousness now overflowed in infinite mercy to this man who called himself the chief of sinners. It's just amazing. Paul gives a summary of this in a glorious sentence in Romans 8.31. I love Romans. Romans 1 to 8, just the incredible chapters and in the, in the climax of that chapter is in Romans 8.31 where it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Another way to state it is, since God is for us, and that's explained in Romans 1 to 8, how that can be, therefore, no one can be ultimately against you. To be sure, people can scorn you. They They can behead you like they did Paul but they can't be ultimately against you because you are now secure in Christ and you are in him and God works everything together for your good, even the scorning of other people. So, the sovereign, loving, wise God of the universe is for someone. Then no mere created being, either angelic or human, can be ultimately against that person. To be sure, many people are against God's people just as they are against Paul and may even kill their bodies just as they decapitated Paul. But they cannot ultimately harm God's people and thwart God's purpose because God is at work and he turns everything for the good of his people. So Paul was a free man. That's what I long for us. He was a free man. He was anchored in Christ. He was secure in his relationship with God. He was confident that God's smile was on him. He didn't interpret the difficult circumstances as though God were against him. He agreed with the writer of the Hebrews who taught so clearly that God uses difficulties to train his children whom he loves. Paul knew that these afflictions were momentary and were light compared to the eternal weight of glory that God was producing through the sufferings. So when Paul became aware of the negative opinions that others had about him, his immediate response was not to lash out in prideful self-justification. He was a free man, a man for others. He was secure in Christ. The biggest issue was already solved. The Judgment Day issue was already solved. The Judgment Day verdict had been won for him through his attachment to Jesus. He wasn't afraid to acknowledge his own failures, his remaining wickedness. He wasn't paralyzed by the sins of his past. So when he became aware of negative opinions, he said they were small things. They were small things in comparison. In comparison to God's acceptance of him, these human opinions or accusations were like the chirping of a cricket in the stillness of the night. You can compare that to a sports arena. And the moment the last second winning basket is scored by the hometown team in a championship game, the roar of praise makes the chirping of the cricket a very small thing. But if there's no roar of praise, the chirping of the contrary opinion and the stillness of the night can seem like the worst noise imaginable. So my longing for each of us is that we can go to bed at night confident in the roar of God's praise. So it says. Each man's praise will come to him from God. His commendation is from God. And may that be like a roar of praise. From Almighty God, amazing thing to think about. The chirping of a human, contrary opinion. Paul wasn't oblivious to it. He said it's a small thing. He didn't say it was non-existent. He said it's a small thing, for God can use contrary human opinions to draw us to Himself and to improve our effectiveness in God's kingdom. If a contrary human opinion comes your way, stop for a moment, examine it, decide if it's true or if any part of it's true, and confess it to God, resolve to make it right through an apology or some appropriate repentant action, and then glory in the smallness compared with the massiveness of God's acceptance. One of the famous preachers of all time, Jonathan Edwards, he said when he was criticized, he was resolved to take that criticism and to look at it and to look for any kernel of truth that might be there and then to let it be used by God to better him, not to crush him, but to improve him. And so diffuse the criticisms that come your way, learn from them but don't be consumed by them. Let them be small. The reason I call it the roar of God's praise, which replaces the, the, the chirping cricket of, of human contrary opinions that we experience, it's the roar of God's praise is because it's based on the work of Christ, not on our own merit based on the work of Jesus Christ. So someday, all those who are hiding themselves in Christ will hear Almighty God, the Maker and Redeemer and Judge of the universe, say the thing that we crave all too much to hear from little human beings. He will say, and he's already said it in Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. That's amazing. Well done, good and faithful servant. To be commended by your Maker, It can't be any better than that. So my main point, with this I close. When God is big, another's opinion of me loses its consuming power. God's declaration of who I am in Christ is the only assessment that ultimately matters. So may we leave this morning with a desire to know and trust the bigness of our God and His massive, amazing, merciful, complete acceptance of us in His Son. He is sovereign. He is good. So may each of us learn to see ourselves through the lens of His acceptance in Christ. May we learn to see our brothers and sisters through the lens of His acceptance of each of them in Jesus Christ. And may we learn to see ourselves corporately as a church through the lens of God's fundamental and pervasive acceptance of us because of His Son. Jesus loves His church in all of its expressions, and He loves this local expression of His church. He is conforming His church into the image of His Son. And He delights in what He's doing. He delights in us. And so, let's pray. Father, I pray that we would just, day by day, be impacted more and more deeply by the gospel. That our sins are forgiven once and for all that you've accepted us in your son and that we have nothing to fear and so I pray Lord you'd free us from laboring under what this or that person is thinking of us I pray that we would experience the freedom of knowing that your smile is on us and that you are at work mercifully changing us and so help us Lord Help us as we speak truth to each other in love. Help us to share things that can be better. But, Lord, help us to receive them in um, trust in you that you are working in us to will and do of your good pleasure. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.